The Christian in Complete Armor, a treatise of the saints' war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapon, together with the happy issue of the whole war. Yes, that's a title that fits on the page of a book. And in case you're wondering, Gurnall was a Puritan. And if you think the title is a mouthful, you should get a load of the book itself. The volume that I have, which is published by Banner of Truth, comes in at just a smidge under 1,200 pages. And those 1,200 pages are double column. So you need glasses to read it. And the whole thing, it is an extended commentary slash reflection upon this passage of Scripture that I just read in your hearing. Now, you can take a deep breath. I have no intention of subjecting you to such a tedious treatment. I'm not skilled enough to do it, and I'm certain that you don't want me to try. But what I do want to do this morning is this. I want you to see that as a Christian, God wants you to suit up. That's really the kernel of truth that we want to get to this morning. Christian, you must suit up. And if when you hear that, you think to yourself, well, well, why are we supposed to suit up? What's the big deal? And the answer is, Christian, you must suit up because of your enemy. You need to know right now that you are engaged in a war. And the first rule of war is that you must know your enemy. And so what does Scripture teach us here this morning about our enemy? For starters, notice that our enemy is spiritual. Look at how Paul describes the whole thing in verse 12. We are told that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is to say, physical people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but what do we wrestle against? The rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the warfare that we wage, again, is not against a flesh flesh and blood enemy, but against spiritual forces. And what Paul seems to be referring to here in verse 12 is the devil and his demonic beings and ideas. Now, to be clear, None of this is to suggest that our enemy does not manifest himself in particular ideologies or institutions. He most certainly does. But it is to say that what we are chiefly involved in is a spiritual battle. What happened in Uvalde is a spiritual battle. And that is why the armor that the Christian is called to take up is a spiritual armor and not bazookas. Notice another impetus for suiting up. Our enemy is powerful. He's powerful. And while I don't think we can be too dogmatic with exactly what Paul means there in verse 12 with that list of our opponents, 
What can't be missed is how our enemy is described. Again, return to verse 12 and look at that language. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. While we don't want to suggest that sort of good and evil, God and Satan, that they're, that they're somehow on equal footing, we, we don't want to suggest that. But neither do we want to suggest that our enemy is weak. He's not. Christian, if you go out to war against this enemy without being suited up, then you will be clobbered. And you will be clobbered because our enemy is powerful. It's also imperative that we know our enemy is cunning. Verse 11 puts it like this. Put on the whole armor of God, Christian. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And that word schemes, it means crafty scheming with the intent to deceive. Our enemy is a liar. He always has his fingers crossed. He dangles wonderfully colorful and flashing lures in front of us. But when we bite down on them, what we find lodged in our jaw is a barbed hook. Our enemy is spiritual and powerful and cunning. And finally, he's just evil. He's just flat out evil. Middle of verse 16 tells us, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Christian, you have to get settled in your mind right now that Satan hates God and Satan also hates you. And he wants to wreck you and ruin you in any way possible. And he doesn't just want to wreck and ruin you. He wants to wreck and ruin you and your family and this church. And if you sort of zoom out and scratch your head and go, why? The answer is because he is evil. And unless you and I are suited up, then he will have his way with us. Now, it's altogether possible after hearing about the reality of our enemy, it's possible that you might be tempted to wave the white flag. And I would just caution you that that would be a grave mistake. We have to understand that retreat is not an option. Please understand this. The reason that Scripture wants us to know our enemy is not so that we know who we are to run from, but rather who we are to stand up to. Christian, in the heat of battle, we are to be those who stand not cower. And you better believe that we are in the heat of battle. Now this call to stand, it's brought out in at least two ways. To begin with, we are told repeatedly by God's word to stand. Put your eyes again on verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Still in verse 13, having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. You think Scripture's trying to tell us something here? We are a part of the Lord's army and it is incumbent upon us that we stand. 
So why do we need to have two feet firmly under us and a rebar, a, a, a spine made of rebar? Because as John Stott says, wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. But we're not only to stand, we're also to wrestle. Verse 12 again, you see the very masculine language, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's true, we do not do that, but we do do this. We do wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil. So as Christians, I don't know if you know this or not, when you became a Christian, you became a wrestler. We are supposed to be grappling and fighting and taking down the enemy. And in case you think I'm pushing this just a little too far, the word there in verse 12, the word wrestle, it carries with it the idea of not just being engaged, but also of sort of hand-to-hand war. It's the picture of close combat. So again, this is why, Christian, you and I must suit up. Because there is, in fact, a spiritual war that is raging. And as the infantry... We have been called by Christ to fight. Now let me just pause very briefly and say that with all of this battle imagery that is being used, I want to be very clear and say this. Our call is not to win the battle. This is not what Ephesians 6 is teaching us. Nowhere, Christian, are we called to defeat Satan. You know why? Because our great general, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has already done that. Please hear me. Ephesians 6 is not about D-Day, not even close. Ephesians 6 is more like V-E day. Christ has already won the war. He has already defeated Satan. And he did that on Calvary's cross. We need to understand that when Christ shed his blood and when he put a vacant sign over top of that tomb, the war was already over. The war has been won. And so you and I right now, what we are involved in is something of like a mop-up operation. And in this mop-up operation, we are exhorted by the very Spirit of God to be strong in the Lord, verse 10. To stand, verse 11. To wrestle, verse 12. And don't miss this. We can be strong and we should stand and we are to wrestle. Why? Because we are already victors in the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, none of this means that we ought to stand before our enemy naked. Though he is defeated, he is still dangerous. Like a snake with its head cut off, he can still bite So we have to have our gear on. And when it comes to suiting up, the Apostle Paul draws upon the image of a Roman soldier. And given Paul's not-so-infrequent run-ins with Johnny Law, he would have been more than acquainted with their particular attire. And so again, he picks up on that image, the image of the Roman soldier. 
And he mentions six pieces of armor that we as Christians must wear. The first you will find in verse 14, and it is the belt. We are told in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And I, and I know that when we think of a belt, we think of something that is wore on the outside of our clothing. But that is not what Paul is referring to here. The belt of the Roman soldier, it was actually something that was wore on the inside of his clothes. It was something that was intended for the undergarments. And so the first thing that he would put on is this belt of truth. And once it was securely fastened, it would enable the soldier to be, to be mobile and to be agile. It, it would prepare him for the battle. Well, for the Christian... We should recognize that's what truth does. That's why it's called the belt of truth. If we are to wage war, brothers and sisters, then we must have truth securely fastened, securely fastened in our hearts and in our minds. To be clear, we're speaking of the truth of God, the truth of God's Son, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Christian life, the truth of our enemy. This truth, it must be snug and fastened. As Christians, we are to be a people who speak the truth, who stand in the truth, who serve the truth, and who live in light of the truth. Unfortunately, though, it's not uncommon today for many professing Christians to have no time or patience for truth, or as the Bible would call it, for doctrine. I don't know how many times I've heard that, more times than I care to admit. And when people say that they have no time or no patience for truth or for doctrine, what they're saying is that they have no time or patience for God, for His Word for what it means to live in light of what God has told us. Paul is very quick to correct such silliness. He's letting us know on the front end that truth is essential if you and I as Christians are going to stand in the day of battle. From there, Paul mentions the second piece of armor. It's the breastplate. He says in the middle of verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This was a piece of armor, as you can imagine, that was wore over the chest. And it was designed to protect against swords and arrows. Let me ask you, Christian, what protects you from spiritual blows, from the spiritual swords and arrows of our enemy? And the answer, again in verse 14, is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So, where does your righteousness come from, Christian? This is something that even seasoned believers stumble with. Is your righteousness the result of your dedicated Bible reading? Your church attendance? Your so-called commitment to keeping the Ten Commandments? Is your righteousness the result of your baptism or maybe your conquering of that pesky sin or your faithfulness in teaching maybe a Sunday school class or something like that? 
Christian, we have to see that the only... That's not me, is it? It's everyone. We must see, Christian, that the only righteousness that counts for anything, the only righteousness that matters on that day is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is imputed to the Christian by grace alone through faith alone. This really is getting to the very heart of the gospel. The most scandalous truth of the gospel is contained in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and that is this, that God justifies the ungodly. We are prone to think that God justifies those who work hard, those who get their act together, those who complete their laundry list of religious duties. No. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies those who don't deserve it. God justifies those who do not have an impressive resume. God justifies those who look to Christ. And that is where our righteousness comes from. In this vein, you might consider the Apostle Paul. Speaking of a resume, is there anyone who had a more impressive resume than the Apostle Paul? Remember how it's laid out for us in Philippians 3? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He goes on to say, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one here has a resume like that. And yet, Philippians 3.3, Paul says he was resolved to put no confidence in the flesh. He goes on to say in Philippians 3.7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That resume, all the good that he has done, all that he had accomplished, it's all meant for the dumpster. It's all counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Please hear this. This is the key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see there are really only two kinds of righteousness? You will either stand before God on the last day robed in your own righteousness. You will present your own resume. And what God's word says is that even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. So that is one righteousness. Or the righteousness that comes from God and depends upon faith. A righteousness where you plead not yourself, but the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is why Luther called this an alien righteousness. He doesn't mean it was like a green Martian. What he means is that it comes from outside of yourself. It doesn't brim up from within you. It comes from God. And what I want you to understand is that if you are looking to yourself for your own righteousness, even for 1% of your righteousness, then you, in your armor, will have all kinds of chinks. But the righteousness of Christ, that righteousness that is given to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in the gospel, that righteousness is perfect. And it protects you completely. From there, Paul mentions shoes. He says in verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's something I've learned as I've gotten just a little bit older, and that is there are some things that you don't just want to skimp on. And one of those is shoes. A cheap pair of shoes will ruin your day. How much more so if you are a soldier marching and and fighting and being on your feet all day? So when it comes to the Roman soldier, his shoe, or better said, his boot, it was of a, a particular kind. They actually had these nails that were in the bottom of them to help them have a, a better grip in battle. We, we would just call them sort of cleats today, wouldn't we? And these cleats, they would enable the Roman soldier to, to move or, or cut or turn on a dime. Or by the same token... When faced with an an onslaught of of enemy soldiers, they would be able to dig in with those cleats and, and stop them. The point is, shoes are essential. So how does this relate to the Christian life, you ask? Well, there are basically two views with respect to verse 15 and what it means to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. One view argues that through the gospel, we are at peace with God. And here you might think of a text like Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this view, the emphasis is upon the fact that our war with God has ended. And because our war with God has ended, we have the courage and the confidence to stand and to fight and to hold the line. That's one view. The other view sees the emphasis being on how the Christian is not just to stand in the gospel, but to share the gospel. In other words, one of the ways the Christian soldier is doing battle is through proclaiming the gospel to a hostile world. To which you say, well, which view is correct? And I would simply submit to you that we need not choose. And that is because both are patently true. Christian, as you seek to stand, you must stand in the utter sufficiency of Christ and his gospel, knowing that through his blood, not anything that you have done, all through Christ, you are at peace with God. And then you ought to raise your voice and proclaim that message so that others might come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior as well. The point is, do both. 
Do both. Let me mention the fourth piece of armor Paul says is critical. The shield. You know it's critical because he says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now, when you hear uh, a shield here, don't think of one of those like dinner-sized or dinner plate-sized shields, something like that. The, 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 the shield that the Roman foot soldier used was actually like very large. It was door-shaped. It was something like four feet tall and nearly three feet wide, and it would offer complete protection for the soldier. If that wasn't enough, these same shields were often soaked in, in water before the day of battle. That way, they'd be able, as verse 16 puts it, to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So Christian, just as this shield was critical for the Roman soldier, so it is critical for you. You must take up the shield, verse 16, of faith. So you, as a Christian, you must rest solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. You must put all of your confidence in him and in him alone. It must all be about who he is and what he has done, not who you are, not what you have done. And then just as a Roman soldier would hide behind that shield with an onslaught, So you must hide behind the shield of Christ. You must trust that all he is for you is more than enough for you. You must rest in him. You must trust in him. You must treasure him. You must live by faith in him. For that is the only way, again, verse 16, that you will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It brings us still to another piece of the Christian's armor, and that is the helmet. Beginning in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Just as it would be suicide for the Roman soldier to enter into battle with his head exposed, so too you must have your helmet securely on. What is this helmet, though? What truth is Paul alluding to here? Well, he says in verse 17 that it's the helmet of salvation. So don't be confused. He's, he's not encouraging you or I to somehow save ourselves. No, what, what Paul is alluding to here and what he wants us to see and something that he has been really communicating to us from the first chapter of his letter is that this salvation, it is something that is outside of us. It is something that the triune God has done for us. Think back to Ephesians chapter 1. Our salvation is something that the Father has predestined for us from before the foundation of the world, and it is all owing to grace. The same salvation is why the eternal Son of God became incarnate on our behalf. He submitted to the law of God for us. He perfectly obeyed it in our stead. And then he died on the cross under the judgment of God as if he was one who had broken the law of God. Three days later, he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he was crowned king 
of the world. And the very Spirit of God, He has regenerated us, sealed us, indwells us, empowers us, encourages us, and secures for us the salvation that the Father in His love has purposed for us and that the Son in His blood has purchased for us. So then what's Paul saying here? Well, if I I can put it this way, he's saying that helmet of salvation, put it on. Christian, realize every morning that you wake up that you have been rescued from sin and death and hell and Satan and wrath. You, by the work of God in your place, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You've been transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. You have been raised to spiritual life and now you've been put on the front lines of battle. So fight! And be confident as you do. Be confident. Please hear this. Because in that spiritual battle, you are not fighting for salvation. You are fighting from salvation. Christ has won redemption for you. So suit up. Make sure that chin chin strap is secure. And get to it. This leads us to the sixth and final piece of armor, the sword. As Paul puts it in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The specific sword that Paul is referring to here, it was actually a rather short sword. Today, we would just call it a dagger. And it was used, it was designed to be used in in very close combat situations. And it was used as both a defensive and offensive weapon. And the parallel, of course, as verse 17 tells us, is with the Word of God. The Word of God is our sword. And so what's the directive? What Scripture calls us to do is to unsheath our sword. The only way that we are going to win this battle is if we blow the dust off of our Bibles. I think it was Spurgeon who said that there are many Bibles that have enough dust in them that you can write on the cover, damnation. Christian, we must read our Bibles. We must study our Bibles. We must delight in our Bibles. We must obey our Bibles. We must treasure our Bibles. Because without the sword, without the word of God, you understand this whole list, we do not have an offensive weapon. If you do not have the sword, then you are a sitting duck. So we must, like the people of Nehemiah's day, we must say, bring out the book. And we say that not just here, but this evening, and tomorrow morning, and then Wednesday afternoon, And every day of our lives. If we aren't wielding the sword, then we aren't fighting. And so here's my encouragement to you as a Christian. Throw away the scabbard. You don't need it. Grab that sucker and start whacking at something. Go to work with the word in your heart, in your family, in your neighborhood, in the church. Unsheath the sword. Now, before we move on 
from this rather vivid picture that the Apostle Paul is painting for us, allow me again just one sort of quick comment. These six pieces of armor, it is essential that you as a Christian suit up with all six. You need all the armor, right? For example, if you have the sword, but you forget the shield, or you make sure that you have that helmet on, but you forget your breastplate, then you have to understand that you are going to be left exposed and you are going to be left vulnerable. So Christian, you need to stand firm. You need to suit up and you need to do so in its entirety. It's here, though, where the metaphor begins to break down. Because after all the mention of armor, in verse 18, Paul just sort of dispenses with the whole thing, and he, he just flatly calls the church to be a church of prayer. And, and I recognize that initially this might seem strange. How can Paul just so quickly and effortlessly shelve the whole idea of, of the war and soldier metaphor? Isn't that kind of odd? But at the same time, it's not entirely disconnected. And I say that because I think what Paul is doing here is he is showing to us how foundational prayer is to all of this. None of the defensive or offensive weapons just mentioned. The belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, the helmet, the sword... It will only prove effective, church, if it is first bathed in prayer. John Piper said it well, you cannot know what prayer is for until you know life is war. And so Paul wants us to come to terms with this. A life of dependence on God in prayer is essential if we are to engage successfully in warfare with the powers of darkness. So what all of this means, church, is that we must both suit up and hit our knees. We must have all of our armor on and we must be committed to prayer. Let's see how Paul characterizes this guerrilla warfare. This wartime prayer. Excuse me. Christian soldier, we must pray constantly. Constantly. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times. Romans 12, 12 says something similar. Be constant in prayer. Or consider Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. The picture that is being painted is this. Prayer for the Christian is like breathing. We, we do it. We can't not do it. If we don't do it, we don't live. Christian, we will not be able to stand and fight and wrestle against spiritual forces if we don't begin that fight on our knees. We are also told that Christian soldiers pray faithfully. You see what Paul says there in verse 18? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That phrase, in the Spirit, it doesn't mean that, that your eyes roll back in your head and you start clucking like a chicken and speaking gibberish. No. 
To pray in the Spirit means that you pray in accord with the Spirit. It means that as a Christian, you submit yourself to God and to His Word, and you pray as He would have you to pray. It means you pray God's words back to Him. It means you pray God's thoughts after Him. It means you yield yourself to Him and seek to align your will with His, not align His will with yours. That's what it means to pray faithfully. We're also encouraged to pray diligently. We're told in the middle of verse 18, to that end, that is praying, keep alert. I know that this might sound counterintuitive to what we tell our small children, but Christian, you must keep one eye open when you pray, right? That is to say, we do not want to fall asleep spiritually seeking. Remember, this is war. You snooze, you don't just lose, you die. You die. In a related vein, we pray persistently. We are to pray, verse 18 again, with all perseverance, This is one of our favorite words in our home. Perseverance. We do not give up. As our Lord taught us to pray, we ask and we seek and we knock. And we keep doing that. We pray and we pray and we pray some more. And when we don't feel like praying, we pray and ask God to help us feel like we want to pray. And so we pray and we pray until we're really praying. You remember our our Lord also told us a parable, didn't he? It revolved around a persistent widow. You remember her? She kept leaving voicemail with the judge, crying out for justice. Day after day, she had him on speed dial. She kept shooting off emails. She was writing letters to the paper. She just wouldn't stop. And the point of the parable is not that she was obnoxious. The point of the parable is very clearly told in Luke 18.1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Christian, we are to be individuals and families and a church who are persistent in our prayers. And finally, as Christian soldiers, we are to be those who pray corporately. By that I mean this. We are to pray for one another. As the end of verse 18 puts it, making supplication for all the saints. And you'll notice in verse 19 that the Apostle Paul himself, he he includes himself there, doesn't he? He's asking the church at Ephesus to pray for him. A couple of months ago, at the behest of a beloved friend of mine, I was finally had my arm twisted so that I binged that band of brothers. One of the things that struck me was how tightly knit that group of soldiers was. If, if you've seen that or are familiar with the, the, the account that that thing is based on, th- this is a group of men who were not worried primarily about self, but one another. They had one another's back. And similarly... As we face the spiritual enemy, we don't do so alone. We do so as a church. We do so as a unit. We do so as a platoon. And what that means, at bare minimum, is that you can know that I'll be praying for you. And I trust that you'll be praying for me. 
And we do this because we must. We do this because hopefully, if you haven't already, you're beginning to see now that we are desperately in need of grace and strength and wisdom and courage and help. And we are desperately in need of these things because, again, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And if we are honest, if we are engaged in this spiritual battle, it is taxing, isn't it? And so we need one another. We need to pray for one another. Now, church, I mentioned earlier that this war has already been won. Christ has conquered. But again, just because the war is over, it doesn't mean that there are not still battles that are raging on. There are. And the point of Ephesians 6 is to let us know that we are to suit up and to be engaged in that battle. Maybe I can put it to you this way. I I think we all have certain outfits for certain tasks, don't we? So I would assume that you wear your pajamas to bed. We wear swimsuits if we want to splash around in the pool. We wear crummy clothes to do yard work. Some of you deranged people go to the gym, and so you no doubt have your gym clothes that you wear. Well, I trust that you don't wear your swimsuit to bed. Well, in a similar way, Christian, in the battle that we are in, you need to wear the appropriate gear. We are not on vacation. We are not going to bed. We're not out doing yard work. We're not cutting the grass. This, the Bible says, is a time to fight. This is the time for you and I to stand strong. But the point of our passage this morning is we will not do so unless we are wearing the whole armor of God. And that whole armor of God, it is to be bathed in prayer. So Christian, my exhortation to you this morning is simple. Suit up. Suit up and get on your knees. Join with me in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we recognize this morning Perhaps some of us for the first time, and perhaps for others of us, this is a continual reminder that we are involved in a battle, and it is a spiritual one, and it is one where we are playing for keeps. We recognize the the tools that you have given us, with the armor that you have called us to wear. We pray that with the grace of your Spirit, that he would convict us, that he would encourage us, that we would be those, again, as individual Christians and as families and as a church, that, that we would be those who are, who are suited up and who are standing firm and who are engaging the enemy with the means that you have given to us. We pray that you would strengthen us to that end. We pray that we would be a people who pray. We pray that we would be a people who encourage one another. You have told us that we are to bear one another's burdens and so to fulfill the law of Christ that we are to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we pray as we are part of this platoon that you would encourage us and equip us to that end. We ask that you would give us the grace to do this in the name of your Son, for it is for his glory that we pray. Amen and amen.